So when we're having an argument with someone and we try to persuade them with facts, <laughs> this is not going to work. Emotions are going to persuade them, not facts. So like it or not, you, me and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am glad you're with us today. I had a wonderful conversation with Dan Solon. Before we get into the episode, if you have been enjoying these episodes and enjoying the guest, please send your favorite episode and favorite guest to one of your friends. Send them the link and I hope they enjoy it. Also, if you have two minutes, if you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that would be greatly appreciated as it does help bring great guests like Dan Solon. So who is Dan? Dan was referred to me by someone who I hold with a high regard, Cameron Passmore. He's the co-host of the Rational Reminder podcast. So I highly suggest you check out their podcast. It has some fascinating, great information. But Cameron suggested that I give Dan a call or an email and Dan graciously accepted and was on the show today. He is a New York Times bestselling author of the smartest series investing books. And these books have made a difference in a lot of people's lives and I've read a couple of them and they're fascinating. He's been, he's received praise from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on and on and on. He's been on numerous media outlets on TV and radio as people hold his work and his knowledge with a high regard. What are people saying about Dan's work? An engaging book that provides thoughtful, actionable, and perhaps most importantly, evidence-backed insights that reveal what each of us can do to improve our ability to relate to others. The book Ask How to Relate to Anyone is a brilliant fusion of academic and actionable steps, research findings of real-life strategies. Solon offers succinct, engaging summaries of findings from the fields of positive psychology, communication, and neuroscience. Why do we have Dan on today? I feel like we all have a story to tell. We all want to be understood and we also have a desire to seek to understand people. However, communicating is actually quite difficult. And whether we're a financial professional, a mental health professional, or any other type of professional are on a personal level looking to have deeper, meaningful conversations Dan's recent book, Ask, is a great resource that's going to help us all engage in more deeper and meaningful conversations so that we can seek to understand the people we're connecting with. His book looks at changing how people relate and to connect with one another. Like I said earlier, it's seeking to understand and how we can actually turn an argument into an opportunity the role curiosity plays in having meaningful conversations and the importance of empathy and compassion. We focus a lot on his newest book, Ask. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Solon. Dan, welcome to the show. 
I'm really excited to be with you, Sean. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you. We were just talking before how uh, you were suggested to be on my podcast by someone who I regard with high level of respect, Cameron. And just in our little conversation before, I'm really excited for this actual conversation that our listeners get to hear. And I was thinking that we could all benefit from your soul and process in Ask because I feel like we all have a story to tell. We all have a message that we're seeking to tell. And we're all seeking to be understood to some degree. And we desire deep engagements. But, and I speak from experience, yet we're not always effective at communicating these stories, at hearing other people's stories, messages. And again, I speak from experience, not always effective at deeply engaging with others, which ultimately impacts our relationships if we can't or don't engage to the level that we maybe could. And whether it's business or personal relationships, I think our audience will really benefit from this conversation. So I'm really happy to have you on to discuss all of your work and especially your book, Ask How to Relate to Anyone. My first question is, prior to writing Ask, you had, as your bio suggested, six books on investing, very, very good books, uh, New York Times bestsellers. I've actually read a couple and really, really enjoyed them. I noticed those six books all had a common theme where you were giving a lot of really good information and advice to people. And now when I read Ask, I feel it's, it's a fundamentally different type of book. And it perhaps, at least I experienced a deeper engagement with you, even though I didn't know you when I was reading the book. So my question is, what significance, if any, does this book mean to you at this point in your life's journey? So that's a really good question, Sean. I think we're all on a journey in life. And part of that journey is self-discovery and self-awareness. And I think many of us can, even at fairly late stages of life, we're striving to be better. We're striving to maybe change things. So we're asking ourselves a lot of questions. And when I was a financial advisor, I had written two New York Times bestselling books on investing, as you mentioned. So I was getting a lot of very warm leads, like I shouldn't say warm, hot leads, where people would say, you know, I read your book. It's an honor to talk to you. Would you consider managing my money? And I was no more successful at closing those leads than my colleagues who didn't have the benefit of my publicity at the, at the time. And I just started wondering whether there was a more effective way to relate to others on an interpersonal level, whether the way I was doing it as an advisor, lecturing, educating, largely not interested in what other people had to say, whether there was any support for that. So to write Ask, I took a year and just read every self-help book, every psychology study and neuroscience study I could lay my hands on. And it was tremendously meaningful to me because it completely changed the way I relate to other people. So I write for others, but sometimes the collateral benefit is the author ends up benefiting as much or maybe even more than his readers. So what is that benefit? Is it connecting more or maybe just expand that idea of a, what you benefited? So to the extent you have financial advisors listening to this podcast, I'll put it in terms that will resonate with them. Uh, for the five years prior to the time when I 
wrote Ask, or actually wrote my previous book, The Smart Sales Will Kill Over Read, I had generated about $55 million in assets under management. In the one year after I finished those books, particularly the Smart Sales book, which has a more limited research, but the same underlying principles, I generated $100 million that year. So one, I benefited by increasing assets under management. But what was more interesting to me was that all my relationships seemed to be more meaningful. All my conversations seemed to be deeper. It was just a fundamental change in my own, I'm an introvert, so my own anxiety level in social situations, the way I handled almost any situation completely changed once, once I understood the research. Wow. So yeah, any advisor listening or anybody listening can hear that that's a substantial difference once you started implementing this research. And you've used the word meaningful a few times already. And I think all of us seek this idea or this concept of having a meaningful life, finding meaning. So why don't you start sharing with us this process or the premise behind ask? And before I give it back to you, I I just want to make an observation that when I read your book, of course, I self-reflected as I'm reading it. And it made me think about how many of us, when we enter engagements or conversations, we have a choice. We can decide not to listen. We can listen to the words that come out of their mouth, or we could seek to understand them, which you know is, is difficult. Based on your research, your experience and knowledge, how does your process in ASK and the Solon process help us engage in that deeper level? So let me just pick up on one thing you said. You're absolutely correct that when I meet you for the first time, for example, I do have a choice, but it's not quite as free a choice as one might think because of what's going on in my brain when I meet you. The way the brain works is when we're talking like I am now, the prefrontal cortex of the brain is flooded with two neurochemicals, hormones called oxytocin and dopamine. Without getting into the weeds, when this happens, we feel great. Like I'm feeling good now I'm talking. So there's this pull. Yes, I have a choice and I implement that choice now much more consciously, but I have to overcome what hormones are doing to me because if I'm going to give the microphone almost literally in this case back to you, I'm going to have to sacrifice that feeling that I'm getting by talking <laughs> and having you listening and nodding. That's a very good feeling. Yeah. So we have a choice, but we can choose to give those powerful chemicals to the person who's listening. And what I found was that was a trade-off that was worth it in almost any situation I could think of. Wow, what a wonderful way to reframe that. Because yeah, when you're talking, it feels so good. I mean, arguably, you're extremely focused because I can't pet my dog and talk to you at the same time. But to give the chemicals over to you to share that feeling, what, I think that's a fascinating way to look at it. It was a real epiphany to me. I never understood. I just thought things happen spontaneously. I meet you, I talk, you talk. We probably, each one of us doesn't really listen to the other. We're probably just engaged in what's called competitive listening, which means 
I'm just waiting for you to stop so I can talk about what obviously is more important, right? And that was the way I related to others. And what I learned from the research is it's partially chemical. And if I really want to engage you, I can do it with 100% certainty on any subject I want for as long as I want. All I have to do is ask you the right kinds of questions. Oh, yeah. That makes me think about the statement in your book. It's make the conversation about your audience, not ourselves. I believe that was from your book. So what, what type of questions do you utilize or what is the, the research telling us to allow to use your, just use your words to, you can have a conversation about anything to anyone by asking the right questions. So what is the research saying on what type of questions? So there's a great deal of misinformation about this. In fact, I was just watching uh, like a TikTok video of somebody who holds himself out as an expert on asking questions. And he was talking about, he answered your question, like, what are the right kinds of questions? But the questions he was suggesting were actually the wrong kinds of questions. So the right kind of questions are questions that show a genuine, authentic interest in the other person as a person. These are not manipulative questions. These are not questions intended to spin the conversation in any particular direction. They're questions that show genuine interest and curiosity about the other person. The two words really spoke to me, genuine and curiosity. I'm going to park genuine and go into curiosity because you do talk a lot about curiosity in your book. There's a chapter on it. And um, I would say over the last two years, curiosity in my life has played a large role in just me broadening my perspective on things. And it, it seems like I started reading about curiosity and it seems like early philosophers thought curiosity evolved as an instinct to help us adapt to new environments as we were trying to explore them. But then like many theories... I was reading that other people said, no, 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 it's actually, we were fearful in these new environments and we were fearful of the potential danger it may hold. And, and it seemed that curiosity and fear can be provoked by the same situation. And what I had been reading is that sometimes curiosity can override the fear. And I bring this up because in the book, you talk about children and how, how curious they are to explore their world, as the philosophers would say, we're curious to explore the world. And I have two young kids and I feel like they have no fear. <laughs> They'll walk off anything. And then as we mature to adults, well, maybe not mature, as, as we grow into adults, I say that me, maybe I'm not mature yet, but uh, as we grow into adults, it seems like fear starts to override that curiosity. So based on your understanding of curiosity, your research, why as adults do we tend to lose this desire to be curious? And how is that impacting our ability to engage in conversations that are meaningful and deep. So first, to deal with fear, Sean, fear is an emotion, as you point out, with an evolutionary basis. When, when Neanderthals went out to hunt, if they heard the crack of a twig, it could have been the lion waiting to eat them. So we have a long history of fear in our DNA that makes that a very, very powerful emotion. I used to say, I actually did a whole webinar once called How I Can Tell Within Three Minutes Whether a Financial Advisor Is Successful or Will Be Successful. And the answer to that was, I can tell because I determine their level of curiosity. If I find a really curious person, the chances are they're going to be successful. So you correctly point out that your children 
are very curious. I mean, they're going to ask questions. Why is the sky blue? Why do you put milk on cereal? Why, 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 you know, why is the earth round? Why are you going so fast? Why can't we have ice cream? I mean, they have, they have no end of curiosity. And unfortunately, at least in the States, I don't know if this is true in Canada as much, but we distill that out of them through the educational process, which asks them to conform in a very regulated way and discourages curiosity because it's perceived to cause disruption when they're not, the system isn't geared for it. But curiosity is critical to deepening any relationship. I often ask uh, like audiences this, when is the last time you started a sentence with, I'm curious about, and almost no hands go up. And the reason is we're not curious about anything. We have an agenda. We want to implement that agenda. We view other people as just impeding our ability to get to our agenda. We want them to stop talking, listen to us, and then do whatever it is we want them to do, whether that's in a business setting, buy from us, or in a personal setting, like us, whatever it is. And we think the best way to get there is by imposing our agenda on them and showing no interest in them and certainly no curiosity about them. But all the research is to the opposite. Hmm. Can we re-engage or cultivate a sense of curiosity as an adult and not implement that agenda? Yes, but it's much easier to articulate that as a goal. It starts with articulating it. I have a goal, which I do have personally, to be more curious. That's a goal. When I meet any person, I want to be more curious. Now, I am very much aware that there are chemical forces conspiring against my curiosity because I'm going to get much more pleasure initially, like an initial high, from talking, lecturing, educating. But if I have a goal, which is I want a deeper relationship with someone, I know I have to be curious. And there's significant evidence that we can develop curiosity. It's like exercising, right? You exercise a muscle, you build up that muscle. You exercise being more curious. You can slowly become more curious over time, and then it becomes second nature. So you talked about these emotions, dopamine, and, you know, it's our feel-good emotion. When we aspire to implement this curiosity and engage deeper and actually get to that point where we are understanding, not just hearing, but understanding the person we're engaging, would there be other chemicals that come up, like the feel of serotonin coming up, or which is the happy chemical? Oxytocin. Oxytocin. And dopamine are both happiness chemicals. Okay, so can, can we then, can we still get those chemicals that come up when we're not talking about ourselves? Because at the start, we talked about they come up when we're talking about ourselves. But if we implement this idea of engaging and seeking to understand the other, would these emotions come up again? Okay, so I'm not an, a neuroscientist, right? And I yeah. might answer this question yeah. wrong, but this is my understanding. My understanding, based on a Harvard study, when they hooked 190 people up to a functional MRI and asked them in the initial experiment just to talk about themselves and watched Functional MRIs measure brain activity in real time. So neuroscientists then looked at what was going on in their brains while they were talking about themselves. And what they found, they theorized it was oxytocin, but it could have also been dopamine. They theorized that talking about yourself is one of the most pleasurable activities humans can engage in. The result of the functional MRI was no different than when 
people are engaged in the most pleasurable activities known to man and woman, sex, addictive drugs, uh, gambling, fine meals. So right at the top of the pecking order is talking about yourself. And talking about yourself, they proved in a second experiment, they did the same thing but said, we're going to share this with others. We're going to do a transcript, share what you said with others. The prefrontal cortex lit up even more. So what we know is that we are empowered to give this gift to others. What you're asking is, well, we're obviously, when we're empowering them to talk about themselves, I understand what's happening in their brains. What's going on in my brain? I don't know the answer to that. I doubt that it is the same, the, the functional MRI would show the same level of pleasure. But as a rational person, my goal is always to have deeper and more meaningful relationships. And that's reward enough for me. I don't need a chemical rush. If I see that, oh, this is a really interesting conversation. I can see how much you're enjoying this conversation. And I've empowered you to do that. That gives me enough pleasure to motivate me to do it. Yeah, thank you for that answer. And, you know, your answer makes me think about in your first chapter, when you talk about happiness, and we, we look at the research of happiness, which is difficult to study. And I say that because of the sub- subjective nature of it. However, one of the consistent things that I see come across is social relationships. So we're in, you know, when we have meaningful conversations that one of the large tenants or attributes of a meaningful life or feeling happy is having proper social relationships and connections, also known as our social capital. And so I guess just adding on to your point that, yeah, despite whatever chemicals in there, it does feel good and it means a lot. And the research does show us that these meaningful connections add to our overall happiness. So I guess it doesn't matter what the chemical is going on. Well, it, yes. I mean, it matters that we're aware of the barriers to engaging in this that you and I have discussed. You're referring to like, I think it's an 80-year Harvard study that showed that having successful social relationships is the clearest indicator of a happy life, especially as you age. I have a caveat to that study, which is this. We tend to paint with a very broad brush. Introverts like me don't need a lot of relationships to be happy. And I don't want introverts in the audience, which is roughly one third of the population, to feel like, oh, I'm not going to be happy unless I have 50 friends and I have a wonderful relationship with all of them. Having just some meaningful relationships is quite enough for an, for an introvert. It might not be enough for an extrovert. So I think it's important to like just state that caveat. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I guess that speaks to the complexity of studying happiness. There's so many facets, cultural, geographical, so many different areas. You make me think about, I can't remember what study it was, but they talked about deep relationships were much more meaningful than a whole bunch of just, you know, surface level ones, I guess. But earlier we talked about curiosity and genuine. So I want to talk about the word you use, genuine, there. I think we've all experienced, and I'll speak to old corporate roles that I've had where we've been taught a process, say a coaching process. They give us this template and we got to go and coach our staff. And I've been in the, the other seat where someone's coaching me and I could just smell and sense this inauthenticity, this non-genuine approach. And, you know, nothing against that person. They're part of this global system that just, that was the way they're supposed to do it. When we talk about genuine and implementing 
the Solon process. I mean, implementation science is one of the most, not most, it's a challenging to implement. It requires change. As we know, change is difficult. Based on your experience, your experience with the research, implementing the Solon process, how, if at all, which I'm assuming we can, do we implement this in a genuine, authentic manner so other people don't feel like we're manipulating them? You have a context in mind? I do. I've been in different roles that have given me training on how to sell. <laughs> and they boast that this is a really good process because we've taken psychologists and salespeople and implemented them. And here you go. You got to read this and implement it. And here's a few engaging questions where we're going to ask the person about their reality. We're trying to, we're trying to ask them about the reality for them to say something that's meaningful to them. And then we're going to try to create an internal pain point so that they feel pain. And then we're going to offer them our, our product as a solution. So to me, that's very unauthentic and non-genuine. So that would be, that'd be my example is how do we authentically become curious and genuine when implementing this process and we're not using it just to manipulate the other person to get what we want? So when I started my research, I was a blank slate. I had no skin in the game and I didn't care what the outcome was. I was just trying to find a better way to convert prospects into clients. Mm. It didn't even have as a particular agenda deepening personal relationships. I was just, wow, I don't seem to be great at converting very easy situations into, into clients. I wonder what's wrong with me. The answer to your question is, and what my research shows, I can't find support for the scenario that you just laid out. Like, I can't find support for manipulating anyone to do anything. I just can't find support for it. And I think it's insulting, dismissive, trivializing, and patronizing to the person in front of you to believe that they, just like you, won't perceive what you're doing as manipulative and mm -hmm. somewhat insulting, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you had no trouble perceiving it. So mm. what my research showed and why I reject all of that, my research showed that there is one primary reason why people buy from you, and that's because they like you. And when people like you, they trust you. And when they like and trust you, they buy from you. Or at least they believe in what you're saying because you've established trust. When you establish trust called affective trust, AFF, as opposed to cognitive trust, cognitive trust is, are you competent? Almost every advisor I meet is very competent. Effective trust is that deeper level of trust that we have for people in our lives who we know could take advantage of us, but don't, like our dentist. Mm. So we don't go to the dentist and say, please explain why you're using that size drill in this procedure, or please explain this procedure in great detail, or maybe your mechanic uh, you know, is replacing a muffler. You don't necessarily say, prove to me the muffler needs to be replaced. So the way you get to effective trust based on all the research I've done, is to empower people to talk about themselves and then let the conversation go wherever it wants to go. Don't try to drive it in any particular way. So the rules of the Solon process are, you are not permitted to make a statement that doesn't end in a question mark unless you're asked a question. So you're going to ask nice, soft questions that you're showing genuine curiosity in the other person. Sooner or later, that person is going to ask you a question. What do you do? Why do you do it? How will you invest my money? Whatever. Then you're going to answer that question as briefly as possible and then do what's called the soul and pivot. You're going to pivot back 
by asking another question, which is typically, did I answer your question or would you like more detail? And you're just going to let that conversation go anywhere it's going to go. And this, this involves a leap of faith, which is very difficult for many advisors to make because they, they're concerned that they'll never get a chance to make their pitch. But the pitch is what you don't want to make. All the evidence is that humans have a heightened radar for being persuaded or sold. So the other rule is you're not allowed to persuade or sell. All you're allowed to do is ask nice, soft, genuine questions. So, Sean, tell me about yourself. Tell me what you do. How'd you get from there to here? What motivates you to have a podcast? I mean, I could come up with many questions and I would be better having asked you them because I already know what I'm saying, but I know nothing about you and what makes you who you are. So I'm going to learn a lot. And at the end of that, you're going to have a very good feeling about me. We can talk about that. So that's the bottom line. I couldn't agree with you more. If people can tell when they're being manipulated, they know when you're not being sincere. You know, I really, really appreciate that answer and the effect of trust. Um, I think that is so important. And, and I feel like it's hard to manipulate someone. If you are coming from that place of effective trust, it's, you know, I, I don't think they can go hand in hand. And then you said, don't pitch. So I want to kind of expand this to certainly we can talk about client interaction, but how about also just like right now, it seems like in the place we sit as a society level, we have a lot of opinions and arguments come out based on these opinions. What if at all can your process ask, help us turn an argument into an opportunity to engage at a deeper level? Well, the short answer is replace judgment with empathy. Seek first to understand when is the last time in your life, let's say, that you were talking to somebody about a subject where you both disagree? Maybe it was political, maybe it was religious, maybe it was some other issue. And you both disagree. And you laid out your position in a nice, rational way. They out, laid out their position in a nice, rational way. And at the end of that dialogue, one of you looked at the other and said, you know, I felt totally differently about this until I heard what you had to say. Now that I've heard it, I've changed my position. Has that ever happened to you? No. It's never happened to me either. And I spent a lot of years as a trial lawyer, um, trained to be an advocate, right? The reason we can't convince anybody of anything is we're not hearing the same thing. There's this concept called naive realism, which is really fascinating, which says that we are a collection of our biases and experiences. And so when we look at a anything, any object, any situation, we come at it from those biases. So the two of us may, it may seem like we're talking about the same thing, but we're each seeing something entirely different. So if you want to turn an argument into an opportunity, don't try to persuade the other people that you're right. Just focus on understanding their position. Use words like, so Sean, tell me more about that. I'm, I'm curious as to why you feel that way. And has that worked for you? Has that been effective? How did you get that position in the first place? Do you have any doubts about that? Have you ever, have you heard anything that causes you to doubt it? Once you say my goal now, when there are divergent views, my goal is not to convert that person over to my way of thinking, which is practically impossible. My new goal is just to understand their position. Ah, uh, yeah, thank you. And it, it goes back to this idea of seek to understand. And 
my last episode we released, it was with a professor who has done some really fascinating research on utilizing narrative psychology in financial therapy. We talked a lot about communicating with our spouses. And your answer there, I mean, it could be applicable to your friend, to your mom and dad's conversation, or our spouse when we're talking about this highly emotional topic, money. And so it brings me to another thought in your book as we're we're trying to engage to seek to understand. But if we go back inside, we have these other things that are competing against us, emotions. And in one of the latter chapters in your book, you talked about underestimating the role emotions play. So if we look from an emotional perspective, what is the consequence of, if any, of underestimating the role emotions play as we're trying to seek to understand someone? So emotions are at the core of our decision-making. There's a book by uh, Antonio Damasio called Descartes' Error, in which he studied damaged brains, and he found in one particular famous case that when the brain is deprived of its ability to experience emotions, the brain cannot make a decision, even though it can process factual information totally rationally. So when we're having an argument with someone and we try to persuade them with facts, this is not going to work. We can marshal all the evidence we want, but emotions are going to persuade them, not facts. So in the case of a husband and wife, for example, who are disagreeing about money, which is a very common source of disagreement. The wrong way to go about it is for you to explain to your wife why she's wrong. Here are the facts that support why you're wrong. The right way to go about it is to reaffirm your love and commitment to her, to tell her that your relationship is the most important factor in your life, and you don't want anything to come between that, and to say, let's talk more about what we disagree on so that we can come up with some compromise that will alleviate your concerns and make both of us happy because that's really all I care about. I am glad we recorded that because I feel like that could be a very useful statement for many people who are are trying to engage around the money conversation with their spouses. Well, yeah, I should have added this. If you could touch each other, like hold her hand, the power of touch is quite remarkable. You know, there was one study I can recall where librarians were told that when people checked out books, it should just touch them lightly on the shoulder and say, don't forget to bring this book back on time now. And that increased on-time returns by some ridiculous percentage. So touch is very powerful. So if at the beginning of this discussion that we just got, this hypothetical discussion we just had, if one person reached out to the other and you were holding hands during the discussion or during part of the discussion, the whole tenor of the conversation will change because you're showing your love and commitment and you're Mm. confirming it with touch. Wow, yeah. Someone once had told me to, you know, if you want to engage in a a conversation with with your spouse or whomever that's important is to, I guess, maybe if you're touching them, it's not whoever. Well, I guess it doesn't, (laughs) however you want. But uh, to say, you know, I know you didn't intend to do this or something like that and then get into similar to what you just said to, to really, I guess, avoid the, feeling of being judged. And I feel like often we, if we go back to fear, actually, I want to ask you a question on fear. And I know your background is, like you said, a lawyer, but you have substantial research on this topic here. Do you feel like fear is one of the culprits that impedes us from implementing these 
suggestions. So we might cognitively know them, but we get in there and then it's just like, you're, you did this wrong. <laughs> and then you, you debrief, you're like, Oh, whoops. So it, what role does fear have in this? And I know we talked about it earlier, but, and I say this because for me, I've really learned that fear was something I avoided and I compensated by trying to avoid it and say something that I didn't actually mean. So from your perspective, what role does fear have in having these conversations and does it impede us from engaging properly? What I know from my research is that negative emotions are more powerful than positive emotions. And for example, if you've ever been reviewed in a corporate setting, if the reviewer said four great things about you, but then said, you know, Sean, there's just one area where you could improve. And then they give you that one area. You'll remember the negative one. It takes four positive ones to overcome one negative one. So fear is a negative emotion. And fear can stop us from doing a lot of things. We know that people are much more concerned with losing money than with making money. So it can stop you from taking risks that might be appropriate for you to take because you have this fear of losing. We all have a fear of failure. Like when you write a book, we're all very concerned about, will the book sell? What will the reviewers say? And the negative emotion of that fear can actually stop you from fulfilling your goals. So it's something to be aware of that very powerful impact that negative emotions have on us. And I really liked how you quoted Dr. Rick Hansen about how negative emotions are like Velcro. They stick to us and positive ones are like on the Teflon pan. They just fling off. So on this idea of fear and recognizing it, and I didn't hear you say getting rid of it, which spoke to me because you know, last time I checked and I am not a neuroscience or I don't understand everything about the inside of the body. We can't get rid of these emotions. And you talk about in the earlier part of the book, I would say a cautionary approach to the self-help industry. And I bring this up because I often feel like people say like, oh, just don't be scared or, or just do this in the self-help industry. What caution do you give to people when, you know, they're struggling with these emotions and then might hear someone saying, oh, no, you just get rid of the fear. So I guess, what caution do you give people around the self-help industry? So the self-help industry is, as I pointed out, filled with misinformation, errant nonsense, quick fixes for complicated problems. And it really does a lot of harm by making you feel bad about yourself and worse that you can't fix the problem with some simple mantra. So as I quoted, I think a Yale professor of medicine who said, you know, there's a lot of data on all this stuff, but that data doesn't sell self-help books. What sells self-help books are simple solutions to complicated problems called heuristics. And people love that. I, I have a good friend who was sending me every day uh, little homily kind of messages until I asked him to stop. Messages that read to me as oversimplifying very complex situations. So if you're suffering and somebody says to you, oh, you know, just read these two sentences and you'll be all better. When you're not all better, you feel really let down. So when I look at coaches like me, self-help people, anybody who's written in this area, the question I want everybody to ask is, what's that based on? Show me that research so that I can evaluate it myself. 
when you look at 95%, I just made that up, of self-help books, there's no bibliography. There are no studies. It's just like glib rhetoric. So people should be very skeptical of that of the self-help industry, which mm-hmm. is a booming, successful industry, I might add. Yeah, I think it speaks to our desire to get a quick fix. And, you know, I applaud you for pointing that out because I feel like sometimes these many times, to your point, it increases the shame or guilt of like, why can't I get through this? Or this person got through it. But to your earlier point, holy smokes, we have so much different lenses through life that we see based on our experiences. So, yeah, I thought that was relevant just because of this idea of fear is that we, we perceive and deal with fear differently. We can't just read a self-help book and be rid of all experiences of fear. Well, we can't. And the other thing that self-help book books do is somehow reinforce the notion that there's something wrong with us. You know, most of us find life complicated, difficult. We have ups and downs. We do the best we can. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Having as a goal living this perfect life with perfect relationships, with no self-doubt, with no fear, no anxiety, no stress, this simply isn't realistic. So to make people feel badly because they haven't attained a very unrealistic goal is really harmful. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you feel that is really important based on this conversation from the Solon process of implementing this that we haven't covered that you feel like the listeners should hear? I think the thing that changed my life was I can reverse engineer any interaction I have with others by simply giving up my agenda and focusing on the other person. We have covered that, but I just want to make it clear. I call it the battle of the agendas. I meet you. I have an agenda. You have an agenda. I have to give up my agenda in order to make this a meaningful relationship. I call it a battle that I want to lose because in the end, I'm going to win. So this idea that we actually can control the outcome of a relationship is just so mind-blowing to me. There's a protocol. There are rules you can follow. Those rules are set forth in hundreds of studies on psychology and neuroscience. And if you follow those rules, you're going to see a transformational impact in your life. I really, really appreciate that agenda example and certainly one we do want to lose. But to our points earlier, those chemicals make it hard. And earlier you mentioned about having empathy. And I feel like that must be one of the critical ingredients in order to give up our agenda is to have authentic empathy, to seek to understand. And and I would probably suggest maybe some compassion as well. Yeah, I think those two go hand in hand. It's very hard to have empathy without compassion. And I, I think that What I underestimated was I thought if I just laid all this out, everybody would adopt it and it would be, whoa, this is great. I can now achieve my goal of having more meaningful relationships. I'll be more successful in business. So I had this line where I say, you can be the smartest person in the room or you can get the business. Very difficult to do both. I underestimated how many people cannot give up being the smartest person in the room. I underestimated how many People cannot cede the microphone to the other person because they want to talk. They want to dominate the conversation. They don't, they will not give up their agenda. So one of the things I say to people, what I seek to be is not the most interesting person in the room, but the most interested. Mm. I want to be the most curious person in the room. I'm always conscious of 
Am I showing appropriate curiosity? Have I kind of like turned on my curiosity mechanism? Because in order to be curious, I have to really listen to what you have to say. I can't just go through the motions. So those are all things that I I think seem to be helpful. But it is challenging. I don't mean to make it appear that this is like flipping a switch. Mm -hmm. It is challenging. But I have hundreds of emails from people who've adopted my process. And I've probably spoken to thousands of advisors all over the world. And the most gratifying ones are not only were you right, I converted more prospects into clients, but my other relationships having nothing to do with business are so much more successful. My relationship with my spouse, with my children, that's incredibly gratifying. Yeah. I feel like it's it's such a gift to be able to, to hear somebody and make them feel understood. I have a question that I ask everybody at the end, but before that, did my online Googling get this right? Is your wife an artist? She is. She is. Okay. So you do so much scientific research and evidence-based research, but I also feel such a level of artistic touch to you. Does your wife, being an artist, has it had influence on your touch? Because I really feel that there's, there's an artistic element to your process and the way you speak. So I'm so happy to hear that, Sean. You're the first one to ever make that observation. I can't wait to tell her that you said that. (laughs) She'll be very happy. She's had a tremendous influence on me. Both her art touches me. She's a classic realist painter who's trained extensively in Europe, and her art is beautiful and moving. But her empathy and compassion and thoughtfulness and kindness have really kind of motivated me to do more research to find out why I'm not more like that. I mean, I thought, how do you do that? I mean, it's under almost any circumstance, she's that way. So I think it has had a tremendous influence on me. Yes. Thanks for sharing. So I want to uh, let people know where they can find you. But before we go into there, my final question is now going to go around more so money and your relationship with money. And I'll, I'll position the question here. So pretend you are at end of life, whatever age that is, and you're wherever you are. Could be Florida where you live, could be Edmonton where you know us in the cold, somewhere that brings you peace. So probably not Edmonton in the cold, but somewhere brings you peace. Could be mountain, ocean, it doesn't matter. You're on this front porch, looking out at the mountains, the meadows, the lake, wherever you are, you feel peaceful. And you decide to write a letter to your children's children about what you learned about having a healthy relationship with money and life. What would be a theme of that letter? That's a profound question to drop on me. And I don't know if I can do it justice. It's such a a good question. I think that question is, how do I define success? And the way I define success is contentment, right? Lack of anxiety, lack of stress. And I did not achieve this level of contentment until I achieved a certain level of financial success so that I knew In very basic terms, my shelter is paid for. I can afford food. Okay, I think I can deal with pretty much anything that comes up. Like if we can't afford to take a trip to a place we'd like to go, that's fine. But once I secured that, that gave me the ability to start thinking about, okay, well, what is success? I think people like me tend to be a little glib because we've achieved that level of financial success. And for many people, that struggle to get to that point is an all-encompassing 
extremely difficult one. They're in jobs they don't like. Their career isn't going in the right place. So I think saying to somebody, I want you to be happy while you're struggling terribly to like make your monthly, you're living paycheck to paycheck. I don't think that's very realistic. I really appreciate that answer. And I think it speaks to your empathy and compassion for our society. And uh, you know, that's a conversation that perhaps is another day is, is why do we have a system that allows so many people to, to struggle in that case? But anyways, I appreciate your answer a lot. So Dan, where can people find your book, your work? Where would you point them to? So danielsolan.com is my website. My books are all available on Amazon, including my latest book, Ask How to Relate to Everyone. And danielsolan.com has contact information for me. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I've got it here. Really, really good book. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights with our listeners. A great pleasure to be with you. You ask great questions, Sean. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.